you're coming in being like, all right, I want to know something really, really specific about your culture. Invite me into your world. Invite me into your country. Invite me into the stories that these recipes carry. Hmm. And it was like, a, it's like an elevator. Instead of taking the stairs, you, we were in people's homes. We were, we would talk about, we'd start talking about cake, but we'd end up talking about their families and politics and uh, history of the country. And we had people be like, oh, you know, stay an extra week and we'll drive you to this really cool region. Like, hmm. I think it, it's contagious. Curiosity is contagious. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is about structuring a journey with an obsession. Many people do this, of course. Some people travel to climb mountains. Other people travel to watch sports or drama or shop in exotic markets. Sophia Bentaher, the French-Moroccan-American wanderer I speak with today, hitchhiked through 20 European countries collecting pastry recipes, traveling through countries like France, Poland, Slovakia, Greece, Switzerland, and Italy in the hopes of starting her own coffee shop with the recipes when she got back. I think travel for any reason is worthwhile, of course, but there's something special about a quest, that is, undertaking a journey using your core obsessions and curiosities to seek out whatever it is you consider a treasure. Not only is this a way to focus your journey, it has a way of inspiring local people to take an interest in you and help you seek your goal. Sophia talks about the people she met along the way, as well as why she decided to approach the journey through hitchhiking. She talks about why she kept a spreadsheet to keep track of the people who picked her up while hitchhiking and which bakeries she visited. We start by talking about how journeys that are structured around obsessions are always interesting. Let's listen in. Sophia, what I like about the sound of your journey is that it has a specific focus and obsession. And that is actually, there's a, there's a long, uh, example of that in travel literature, like Lawrence Osborne's book, The Wet and the Dry is about looking for alcohol, for booze Mm. in different parts of the world and how that's culturally different in different parts of the world. Bonnie Sui had a book called uh, American Chinatown, where she visits different parts of the United States through their Chinatowns, um, Mm. And of course, Tim Ferriss has has said before that he uses martial arts when he goes to a new place. Uh, you know, he goes and basically there's an instant conversation topic and social community um, that can structure his travel. So why don't you tell us about your travel mission in Europe and why you did it? Absolutely. Um, I, I really like that you recognize the importance of or like the role of having one topic that we were chasing. Um, So for context, again, uh, back in 2017, uh, myself and a good friend from university, Annabelle, um, as postgraduates from business schools, and I was in Morocco at the time, and she was somewhere in Europe, uh, our friendship was actually bonded on baking and cakes, because I think this is the context number one. I'm obsessed Hmm. with baked goods. I have... I think everybody has that something in their life where it just, it sparks a feeling. It, it It's like that movie Soul, right? When I'm around cake, baked goods, pastries, I'm just, I'm another, I'm, I'm wired on another level. And so her and I connected on that, on that sense. I'm curious. One thing I know that you're, you have Moroccan ancestry. Um, I do. And I've never seen people more crazy about sweets uh, <laughs> than in, than in Cairo. So, so it's not Morocco, but it's North African Arabic speaking country. So I'm wondering if there's a cultural specificity <laughs> to your love of sweets. Um, there is definitely a, an, is- an issue with sugar and diabetes in the Arab mm. speaking, speaking world. Um, so yes, you did pick up there. Actually, I would say though, that my love for baking comes more from my mom's side, who is French and to mm. be honest, French and pastries, there's also a link there. So oh my, God, my cards yeah. were already played, you know, with a French Moroccan family, I was bound to have some connection to, to, to sweet and desserts. Um, but yeah, I would say that that Morocco, actually, in a funny way, I love, I absolutely love Moroccan pastries, but they can almost be too sweet for me at times. Mm. It's, you know, it's a lot of honey and dates and nuts and um, just very heavy sometimes ingredients, whereas I'm definitely more intrigued by um, baking like pastries, like Mm. different cakes. Think, you know, great, uh, is it the Great British Bake Off type of, that's, that's usually the type of food that I'm going to be naturally drawn to, but to mm-hmm. connect. But, so this is a good connection point into how we went off onto this journey. Um, Annabelle and I were just catching up about kind of the, the woes of the postgraduate life, not liking what we were doing. I had quit a corporate job eight months prior and was kind of essentially just not knowing what I was going to do with my life, if I'm being blunt. Hmm. Um, how old and, were you? 
So I was 23. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm in this Moroccan olive grove calling my good friend from university talking about how life doesn't, you know, how I don't really have a direction. And of course we get to talking about cakes and desserts. And at the time, um, this was a post, you know, Brexit had happened. Europe was in a, in a situation where just even in France, a lot of political divide. Um, and so her and I had always been kind of brainstorming about ideas to go and look for diversity and find commonality versus find like basically lead with curiosity instead of leading with projection and division. Mm -hmm. And our, our language being cakes, we just started kind of tossing ideas. And I thought, well, you know, what, what dessert do they eat in Romania? And we laughed about it. And I was like, no, but really what, what's a traditional dessert in Romania? And I think whether it's her or me, somebody mentioned like, we should go check it out because Google, like it's fun, but Google doesn't give you the, the multi-layered yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, experience. So we were like, well, you can't taste Google. You exactly. That is probably, honestly, that's probably, that was quoted somewhere in our conversation. Yeah. Um, so from there, we just started brainstorming. We're like, well, wait, what do they eat in Poland? What do they eat in uh, Brazil? We At first, we went very international. We went like world worldwide thinking, wouldn't it be so cool to have a kind of repertoire of all the international desserts? And also for us, this idea of going out to travel and learning it with people was really thrilling. Um, so at the time, we decided we would do that with a car. So the, the game plan was, okay, kind of hunker down for the next two, three months, save some money, and then go on a trip to learn traditional cake recipes across um, whatever territory <laughs> our finances could allow us to. Um, and I think we even called it at the time the food surfers because we thought about couch mm. surfing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And so we thought, well, instead of couch surfing, what if we food surf? Um, I'm having a vivid memory of a very like – an Excel sheet on which we would just log in at random hours and brainstorm branding and names. And it, I probably should reopen it and have a lot of fun laughing at <laughs> the ideas. Um, so anyways, when came September, which was we were aiming to leave for October, uh, we had not saved up money, probably because we had spent it all on cake ourselves. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so we had to kind of repivot and think, well, what are we going to, how are we going to go about this, this quest? And this is what came up for me when you were talking about, you know, having an objective that drives you through, through a journey. I think it's like, it, it, it categorizes, it, it makes it into like some kind of quest. It becomes a treasure mm -hmm. hunt, you know? Yeah. And there's something like, I think human nature inherently has curiosity. To me, that's, there's such a fine line between curiosity and creativity. And it's just like we, we get inspired to, to find something or to look for something. That's how evolution is led, right? You know, we think, oh, we need to think out, like we need to go look for something that we don't know yet. And that. Well, it's the it, hero's journey, right? You know, it's, it's the old mythic idea of leaving home um, on a quest and coming back changed and enlightened. I I'm trying to think if there's a pun with pastries for the hero's journey. I can't think of one right now. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, I think it's, it's hardwired. Um, it is. That yeah. in, in some ways university is a bad metaphor for that sort of journey, you know, that we, we approximate an intellectual journey in one, on one campus when in fact, um, in like in Germany, there's Wanderjahr, you know, there's the idea, I think that's for carpenters who, who travel to learn their trade. Hmm. Um, yes, we have that in France too. They, hmm. We call them the compagnon du devoir. Hmm. And the, the idea is that you have to hop as, and it's for anybody that has kind of um, a craft with, with their, like, uh, I don't know the word in English, but with their hands. So it can be carpentry. It can actually, hmm. It's actually baking too, baking glass workers, um, wow. metal workers. And what they do is they have to go into all these different hubs across the country, sometimes across Europe, to learn a new skill set there. And then at some point when they've covered, once they've covered all of these different places and learned how to make different architectural styles or different, you know, relevant to what, what they do, um, only then can they claim to be an artisan. Huh. No, that's, uh, that's, I, I wish there was a parallel. Maybe there is in the United States. I know nurses, there's traveling nurses, but, um, uh, yeah, it, it feels like it's sort of a forgotten assumption that travel was inseparable from discovery and education. So, hundred percent. So tell me about tell me about uh, how this uh, the, you know the concrete right journey as it got underway. <laughs> so again, so we're back in France with meager pennies, 
and we're thinking, oh dear, we're going to have to just delay this trip. And also we did not have any form of parental support on both ends. Our parents were very much like, you've invested 40,000 euros into business studies. You're mm-hmm. meant to be on a nice leather uh, chair, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, which we weren't. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I can, I can fast forward through some details, but we heard about these two guys who were, they were doing a social experiment of trying to travel across. They were trying to travel from Lyon to Budapest without spending a single amount, like a single penny. Hmm, okay. um, and we thought, oh, okay. That brought up a lot of resistance for me because I'm just not naturally, I don't, you know, I need to learn how to receive better. So I, I judged a lot. I have to admit at mm. the time I was like, oh, is that like a social experiment or is that just because they haven't figured their life out? <laughs> um, well, there's and, also, there's, I would imagine there's worry that you would be exploiting people's hospitality, that you would 100%. have to, the, the spirit would really have to be pure unless you were just sort of this young person who's trying to game the system. Yep. And, and so, and so again, this is something that I will say since a child, like I, I credited a lot to the fact that I was schooled in an alternative program um, out in St. Louis, like curiosity is definitely one of my best friends in life. Like I, I, even if I notice a certain judgment or projection or idea, I, I'll confront it by thinking, well, I'll make a decision once I've asked questions. Hmm. You know, hmm. I'm not just going to assume. I'm going to ask questions, get the information that I don't know, and then I can make, I can piece together a conclusion from that. Um, so we connect, we connected with these these two gentlemen and had coffee with them where we asked them different questions and they actually convinced us to they they basically told us look you don't you know why are you giving yourself more excuses to delay the trip it looks like you're ready you have time you have the the fire the sparkle in your eyes to go out and do this so why don't you consider hitchhiking um Mm. which we were already fighting against our parents to take a car and go drive so having to throw that into the lot was very unlikely that we'd get any form of <laughs> support. So what we agreed to do is do a mini trip. We said, okay, we'll go for mm. one weekend, test the waters of hitchhiking. And if it seems uh, convincing or if we like it, then we'll consider doing that across Europe. And also at the time we thought, you know what we can do? We can always do a blend. Like we can start hitchhiking and if something happens, get train tickets or get a bus. Mm. This is another thing that I tell a lot of my friends who go out to travel or who ask for travel advice, it's know your privilege. Because in my situation, sure, you know, my parents aren't keen on me leaving to go do this trip. But if I call them stranded one evening at one mm, at one yeah, p.m. Yeah. in Poland, I have a support system. Right. And that's something that I think was really important for us to know because that again, it's like it's a reason, it's a reason it's an additional reason to go and do it because I know that I have a net, a landing net even if it's going to make me swallow my pride and my ego and possibly be in, you know, in, in deep conflict with, with my family, I know that they're not just going to leave me stranded somewhere. A, a quick question. Um, are you by nas- are you American by nationality and then French and Moroccan by ethnicity? Uh, I, well, I'm actually, it, it's a yes. And I was okay. born in the United States, so I have American citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have French citizenship through right of birth or blood, whatever that one is. And mm-hmm. then Moroccan Technically, I could file for citizenship as well. So t- currently, I have French American citizenship and French Moroccan uh, ethnicity. Okay. The reason I ask is just um, I've found that one of my privileges, people just are interested in Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, almost everywhere in the world, once they say you're American, they have some sort of opinion or question or observation. And <laughs> it's it's not like being from Belize where people are trying to figure out where it is on the map. Like um, mm. there, there's something that makes people instantly gregarious. It could be in a negative way, but usually it opens them up and there's something to talk about. So you mentioned right. privilege and that's another one is that being American. American um, sort of greases the skids of, or of, of greases the rails of travel a little bit. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm trying to think back. I think during the trip, like I definitely led with my French identity simply because oh. we left from France. So, you know, you move into Belgium, then you move into Germany. Hmm. I speak German as well. So that was helpful. Hmm. But um, I think it's only kind of once we got into Poland that I started using my English as a communication tool. Mm-hmm. And therefore, because I don't have an accent necessarily, that's when people will start being, will question more like, wait, but where are you from? Right. And that's when, of course, I need to reveal my, my American uh, roots. But 
and, and I'm sorry to go into the weeds here, but was there a difference? Were you received differently as a French person than as an American person in, in Western and Eastern Europe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, mm. that's, a, that's a, a constant across my life. Um, mm. Same in Morocco, same here. I mean, to be honest, even mm-hmm. here in America, if I, of course, I just meet people as an American, but then if anybody picks up the slightest uh, accent or a pronunciation, they'll be like, wait, wait, what, are you from somewhere else? And if I then precise it, I just think it's, I think it's our relationship to the foreign. So mm-hmm. if I meet somebody as Sophia from St. Louis living in L.A., I'm already going to get kind of labeled and put into a certain space into their head. And as soon as I can, mm. as soon as I challenge that with like, again, an accent, or if I turn around and talk to my sister in French or something, again, it's the, we're just like, oh, wait, this doesn't fit anymore. The image that I created of you in my head. And I think there's like the novelty, you know, in America for me, it's funny because <clears throat> I always forget that. I don't know. French is something like romantic and different. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, wait, you're French? I'm like, yeah, but that's, I, I don't know, that's not. And in the same way in France, I used to hide, I actually really re- relate relate to what you were sharing um, about sometimes the assumptions or, or the way that you can be perceived as an American. For a long time, I, I was really trying to hide my American identity. and I couldn't mm. hide it, but I was trying to really not bring attention to it because it was almost seen as a bit pretentious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't go to English class in university because I was exempt since I already spoke English. But there's one year where I had to go, I don't remember, for whatever credits or something. And I spent the whole year not talking. I was like, I cannot talk in, in English because it's going to be judged like, oh, my mm. goodness, it's the American accent. It's so obnoxious. Yeah. Da, 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 da. So, um, well, that, so, yes. can, that can really get into the weeds. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting into the weeds now. Uh, I have an American friend, a, a woman I grew up with um, who's black American. And when she was in France, people were really interested in her. Then one day it rained and she put up her hood and they thought maybe she was North African Muslim and they were more hostile towards her. So it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned St. Louis too. I've gotten, I'm from Kansas. And so sometimes I get weird attitudes from people on the the coast who assume Mm -hmm. they know what it's like Mm -hmm. to be there. So identity is such an interesting constellation and sort of our assumptions about it. So that must be really... I was just going to tell you that. I'm like, I feel like this could be an entire... uh, you know, episode about identity, which I yeah. love. I'm fascinated with the topic because I'm like at the Venn diagram of many different, you know, French, yeah. Moroccan, American, Arab, Western, Muslim, Christian. Like, I, yeah. I feel like sometimes it's this, you know, it's a concept of the TCKs, what we're, they call them, the third culture kids. I don't yeah. know if that's it. And identity doesn't, you, it's so hard to put one label on. And so, and I'm, I'm going to connect this to the trip. Actually, I see the connection here, but because I, I struggle to comply with singularity. Hmm. It's very hmm. difficult for me. I was inherently born into diversity, and so diversity is something that makes me feel grounded. I need I need that multiness and that yeah diversity of, of food, of flavors, of, of people hmm. around me, of languages. And so I think that's what was kind of if I really really scratch under the surface of the trip, you know, it wasn't just like oh I want to go to one country. I was aiming big. I was like, I want to go to every single country in Europe and, and discover like basically just like roll the dice in every country again to see who we're going to meet, what food they're going to tell us about, what desserts are, are there, who's going to teach us a recipe. So I think I was craving that. I think in, in a kind of way I'm, I'm making, I'm having this aha moment in our conversation here, but I really think that I was running after again, just like change and, and novelty in that trip. Well, there's a great metaphor here too. I, something I wrote down on my notes just now, diversity of flavors uh, tastes better, right? And there's sort of a metaphor um, yeah. that if you use food as a metaphor for diversity, that it's just, it's just the world is sweeter on the tongue when, mm-hmm. it, when you have a lot of different sources. Uh, and yeah. my audience is probably thinking, well, when are they going to talk about the trip itself? So I don't want to delay that too much. But <laughs> I think there's some interesting, these are just interesting topics. Yeah, and the last thing that I'll close on diversity and kind of to connect the, the the two conversations that we're about the one we're about to go in and this one I've noticed in my friends who again have more diverse backgrounds if you're able to a acknowledge recognize and accept your inner diversity you're going to be more prone to accepting being mm. curious and wanting external diversity so that's why the divided world today that we're seeing pan out at times I think like these individuals and I loop myself into that. It, 
it's almost there being like, but wait, let's actually celebrate the diversity. We don't all need to be the same. Let's go look for all the little, like I, you know, there's a restaurant here in, in Venice. Um, this chef went out to Italy to learn how to make traditional pasta recipes in every region of Italy. And I'm fascinated by that. I just think this is so amazing that you can look at any level, you know, you can go as micro as you want. There's always diversity somewhere. Even if you think I'm in Italy looking at pasta, which is a pretty obvious box, even in that Mm. box, there's all these subcategories and folders. Yeah, I would imagine, too, that that within different, we we just have all these silos through which we can understand ourselves, but if we blend them, it's better. And I would imagine that hitching specifically, that it wasn't just rich people that picked you up, right? So no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's a kind of diversity too, is that I think that there's a certain, um, hothouse idea of diversity that is, you know, wealthy people comparing each other on other things when actually, and I found this not to make it about me, but I remember once my car broke down in, uh, in New Mexico and mm-hmm. it was poor people who came and looked under the hood that, that every single person, the people who had time for me were the people who weren't the wealthy people on their way someplace oh, yeah. else. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know about, you know, just what you encountered once you and Annabelle were on the road. Right. So let's dive into the trip and I'll just, again, re reclarify context. So basically you've got two, two girls, myself and my friend, Annabelle, two diverse, diversely cultured, um, girls. We have, is she American French? No, she is. Annabelle is like me. She's also a blend of many things. She's okay. Austrian French born in like grew up in UK and Fr- blend. Also, let's just put a blend and I don't want to fill in wrong information. But anyways, there's the two of us Mm -hmm. and our eyes are set on going out to Europe to learn cake recipes. So literally now we can zoom back into we're in Lyon in my father's apartment Mm -hmm. and we've done the mini trip, which was also a whole conversation in itself. Um, So we have full trust that there's going to be strangers and people. It's just like, honestly, we're just in full adventure mode. We're just like, we're going to go off for the next X amount of weeks. People will be there to support us. It's going to be fine. Let's put out our thumbs and, and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had hitchhiking was very, very, very foreign to me again, because of my upbringing, it felt very desperate. Mm-hmm. There's no lack of better words to, to, to say that. I was just like, I felt very judged. Um, on the, on the streets. And so what's interesting, I'm, I'm even trying as I speak, I'm like, where do I purchase? Do I talk about it through food, <laughs> through again, our curiosity? Um, but for sure, when you were asking about the diversity of people that, that we met hitchhiking, um, the first, the first few people that would take us were usually women and mm-hmm. mostly like there was a kind of a motherly vibe. I remember this first, the first ever driver to take us on, on a longer trip, was this uh, French, I want to say Nigerian woman. And she picked us up and she was like, I'm only taking you because if my daughter was on the street, I would get so angry at her. And then she was teaching us. She was like, okay, one of you always sits in the front and one of you always sits behind the driver Mm. so that if something happens, you can strangle them. And I was like, (laughs) oh my goodness, what are we about to get into? I don't want to strangle somebody. I'm like, I've never even, I've never fought physically with anybody. What am I, I'm not going to strangle, you know, a grown man. It's very unlikely. Um, And over the next few days, I started realizing that we were just encountering so many different people. And that's why I'm not sure I I think I sent you this Excel sheet. I ended up keeping this very oh, detailed love, Excel sheet. <laughs> just so my audience knows that uh, that Sophia um, made an Excel sheet of everybody, every ride. And I have a question about the green versus the red categories. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, um, but it's I, I love the na- the data nerd aspect of this, that you <laughs> you you weren't really going, if, if I understand it correctly, uh, you know, as, as a blogger or a YouTuber, but you yeah. did want to document your trip and the, the, the spreadsheet just fascinated me yeah um we didn't go we bought a camera actually um and i think a few weeks in we just realized that having a lens between us and the people would just change Mm -hmm. the dynamic also although i'm a millennial i just i think sometimes like you have to define or you have to you know um discern when it's a moment for documenting versus when it's a moment for just being present in the experience. Like we have people who are opening their cars and their homes for us because that's another thing. Not only were we hitchhiking, we also didn't know where we'd sleep. Hmm. So we would get to a given city and just essentially either knock on doors or talk to people on the street. Or a few times we did reach out to contacts through social media and stuff, but you have to be present. I think it's, it's a, it's a sign of trust. If you're 
actually committed to looking at people in the eye, having a conversation versus having a camera, I think it just adds a, it distorts a bit the nature of the trip. So we weren't documenting it visually, but I am absolutely a hundred percent a data nerd. I have many Excel sheets in my life in which I track stuff. Um, and I just, I thought, you know, I know that my memory only has so much storage. So if I start tracking these things as we go, I was tracking, I mean, I tracked so much. I tracked the names, the type of cars, their jobs, how much, how long we had waited for them, how many kilometers we drove with them. The t- um, I, I don't, I don't have the Excel sheet under my eyes right now, but I just started getting really granular into thinking, I want to remember as many details as I can hmm. in order to later have tangible, like to have facts. So nowadays right. I can say our average waiting time hitchhiking was 28 minutes because people had told us that nobody will pick you up. Hmm. You'll be waiting hours. Yeah. The longest we waited was probably like three and a half, four hours, but the shortest we waited was zero minutes. Um, Mm. this is actually maybe something interesting for people who aren't familiar with hitchhiking. Um, there's two types. I mean, it's, you know, this is all loose definition, but there's two kind of types of hitchhiking. There's active and passive. Mm. And so passive hitchhiking is what people traditionally think of your thumbs out on, you know, you're out on the side of the street, your thumbs out, and you're letting people come to you. So either you have a sign or you don't, you know, to your choice, but people, they're the ones responsible for pulling up to the side of the street and inviting you into the car or not. That's mm. passive. And then active hitchhiking is, for example, you're going to get to a gas station or a parking lot somewhere where you you can go and initiate conversation with people mm-hmm. and ask, you know, hi, I'm Sophie. I'm trying to get to Slovenia. <laughs> is there any chance you're going in that direction? And is there any chance you'd take two travelers in your car with you? Um, and so in that spreadsheet, there was also that category I was tracking whether it was a passive ride or an active ride Mm -hmm. and you can see over time that it became more and more active because again it's just like once you start training your brain that oh i'm not going to be rejected i'm not going to be judged i mean sure maybe to some level but mostly not then it became more and more comfortable to be actively connect like asking people and that also just significantly reduces your waiting time um so but yeah back to the excel sheet it was it was important for me to just first of all to remember people hmm. because that's something that I, as a traveler and traveling a lot, I, I, it can get blurry in my head about all the people that I've met and the conversations. And this was a way to really anchor them into like a place that I can go and remember. Um, it's, it's a strategy. I, I teach travel writing classes and I, I teach strategies for your pocket notebook and how details mm-hmm. are more important than emotions because you'll remember the emotions, but the, the details or harder. I might have to start teaching this. I don't use spreadsheets myself, but yeah, you know, if you have 30 different rides, then those are 30 different people. I remember the word Jehovah's Witness from your spreadsheet. Um, yes. And so oh, that's, and, and, that's important. A hundred percent. And I will answer your point about the, um, the, the rich versus the poor. Mm, yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to place us in Switzerland and you have to vision, envision I am on the side of the road pesting. I'm cursing the entire country out because mm. there's all these fancy cars and they're just driving past us. We had just, Switzerland was one of the last legs of the trip. So we had just been in, through most of Eastern Europe where people were extremely helpful. Mm. And I think there's something, of course, you know, we can go to the obvious, like in countries where there's more struggle, quote unquote, mm-hmm. there's just more solidarity. Mm. So if you're on the side of the street, people are going to help you out because I guess that's just how it the, the culture is. Um, and so I'm in Switzerland and all these fancy cars are passing by us and the looks of judge, I, I can't, you know, this is harder on a podcast to like, to imitate, but it was c- like scorn, a scornful mm. looks or like mm. mouths that pout or like eyebrows. Ri- I don't know. It was just, you guys really- were the dirt bags. Oh my goodness. We were being so judged. And I was, mm-hmm. and I was getting confronted to that ultimate fear that I had where I was thinking people were either think that we're broke, which by the way, we were, I don't know why I was so scared of it. Like we were, it was just the reality. We didn't have money. And so being at peace with that would have helped me a lot. I was in total denial. Um, and also feeling like people were like, okay, they're either broke or sometimes what my other concern was as a woman on the street was that I was like soliciting services or something, mm-hmm. sexual mm-hmm. services that didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just thinking, this is, this is so, now to me it's interesting, but at the time it was infuriating where I was thinking, these people, you know, there's these big fancy cars, they could, we're just trying to go to Italy, it's not, not a huge ask. And I was 
really upset and a bit disillusioned about how sometimes, again, back to our conversation on privilege, I think it it can also isolate us a bit. And so, um, yeah, that was one thing. I definitely noticed a difference between like sometimes more comfortable individuals being less inclined to help us. And that said, I'm catching myself as I speak. We also had stories of wealthy individuals who were guardian angels on our trip. Hmm. Um, Our stay in Switzerland, weirdly enough, was, (laughs) this is a very, very interesting story that I'll, I'll wrap up quickly, but essentially we really, really struggled to go from Austria to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. It was a day where it was raining. Again, uh, cars are not really inclined to pick us up. And so fast forward to like 6 or 7 p.m., we're still on the border of, we're still in um, Switzerland, I believe. Yeah, we're still in, I'm sorry, in Austria. Mm -hmm. And I'm just... I'm, I'm upset. I keep telling Annabelle, this is a mistake. We're now in Austria. If we have to get a hotel room, it's going to cost like 400 euros. It's hmm. dark. Hmm. You don't want to be hitchhiking at night. And we're on this um, highway. Sta- I don't know if you have this in America, but it's essentially in Europe, you know, they call them les, les aires d'autoroute. It's like a little, it, it's basically a, an area on the side of the highway on which there's sometimes hotels, restaurants, people come to get gas. Like, yeah, it's not you, as formal. I know that. I know that in France, usually it's just like the interstate highways in the United States usually have a little colony of of Best Westerns and Waffle Houses um, that cater to that. Though it's not as self contained. There's, there's rest stops where you can go to the bathroom. Right, um, but it's a bit bigger than that. So it's essentially mm-hmm. like these little areas of we'll, we'll call it a rest stop for for sure. no, no other words. But we're there, and I'm thinking that's it. We will not get to Italy today because. It's late, it's dark, and we're still four hours away from, from the country, you know? Um, <clears throat> and I gave Annabelle an ultimatum. I said, look, we ask five more people, and if nobody can take us to Italy, we figure out a way to get off of this area and go to a hotel because it's now dark and dangerous. And Annabelle was like, okay, we had an interesting dynamic during the trip. Whenever she was, whenever she was not optimistic and she had like lost hope, I would have a high level of that. And when I was, you know, we would balance each other out. So she was like, come on, believe you have to believe tonight. We'll be in a big comfy room with a jacuzzi and a sauna. And I was like, no, Annabelle tonight, (laughs) we're going to be 400 euros out of pocket. Um, but anyways, so five more people, I said, we can ask five people. The first person that we ask is this really lovely woman. And we were trying to go South. So, hi, we're Annabelle and Sophia. We're trying to go south. And she just looks at us and she says, girls, there's a snowstorm in the south. You're not, nobody, nobody's going south. Like, hmm. your best bet is to go back towards Zurich. Hmm. I'm like, oh, dear. So we asked some more people. And what we're asking this time, we start pivoting. So we're asking people, sorry, are you going north? And can we come with you? And it's still no. Hmm. People are still, so three people go by like, no, sorry, we don't have space. And the last people I remember, Annabelle goes up to them. And it was this couple, and she's like, hi, sorry, uh, we're trying to get a ride out of here. Are you going north? And they just turn around and like, oh, we're so sorry, girls. Actually, we're going south. We're going to Italy. Huh. Moment of, and I, I actually remember, I don't think Annabelle even asked them. She was like, oh, my goodness, we're coming with you. I think she, like, <laughs> declared it instead of asking. And they were very sweet. They were absolutely adorable. It's an Italian couple. Um, mm-hmm. So they say, okay, well, we're going to, um, the city's completely slowed through my mind, but it's at the border basically of, of Switzerland and Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they explain that they're going there, you know, it's going to be a four hour ride and they're asking us about our journey. We start talking. Unfortunately, they could not host us because they were renovating their home. And she, the woman was getting concerned. She was like, you know, girls, uh, if you, if you don't have a place to stay, it's going to be really difficult. We're going to get there at midnight. And I was like, don't worry, drop us off at a bar. We'll meet somebody there. And she's like, no, no, it's Sunday. There's no bars. This is a mm. town of like elderly individuals. And I was mm. like, it's fine. We'll figure it out. So <laughs> we fall asleep, both Annabelle and I actually, which isn't a great tip. Usually we always would try to have one person awake just to make sure that, you know, for mm. safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wake up about an hour later and this woman tells us, she's like, Hey, do you guys speak German? We do. She's mm-hmm. like, okay, I posted a Facebook status asking different friends if anybody could host you. And there's this guy from a London. He's, I don't really know him, but I kind of trust him and he can host you. So I'm thinking, wow, first of all, that's very kind of her to have gone out of her way to do that. Um, and again, it's midnight at this point. And so we're 30 minutes away from the city. 
So they tell us, okay, um, we're going to drop you off straight at his home. So we recorded a little voice message to him. We were like, Hi, hello, Andreas, we're Zin Sophia, and whatever. We gave a little introduction and mm-hmm. confirmed that we were going to his home. Uh, 30 minutes later, we're driving down this, along this lake. And so it's, it's pitch, you know, pitch night. The lake is silver with the moon. It's this very, like, kind of mysterious vibe. We're driving along the water on this winding street, and we've... We basically drove through the city and then continued driving out. And that's when panic kicked in for me because I'm thinking, mm. okay, wait, this is sketchy. Where are we going? And, you know, of course they've been kind, but you still don't know the people. So I'm thinking mm. maybe this was some kind of very, very well-oiled trap and <laughs> now being kidnapped or something. I don't know. I went very dark in my ideas. Um, right. And then they pull over on the side of the street and on the side of this, like to the towards the lake because – on our left side, there was the mountain. So it was all this like this big slab of rock. And then on our right side, there was the lake and we were just on this winding street. And I'm thinking, oh no, this is it. This is the moment where it all ends. Uh-huh. So they both get out of the car and they're talking in front of the car on the phone. And I'm just looking at Annabelle like, what is going on? There is nothing around us. And then I promise you that... The slab of the rock on the on the on the left, a part of it just opens, mm-hmm. and there's this essentially driveway that was hidden in, into the rock with all these fancy sports cars. And I'm like, okay, what's happening? And we look up, and there's this beautiful building on the like on this on this flank of the mountain that's you know in front of the lake. And this man walks out, and he's all dressed in a very like aristocratic, you know, I mean. I, I, I probably have pictures, but he's just very elegant. He's like, hi, I'm Andrea, and I'm your host tonight. This is so... He was amused by us, to be honest. He told mm-hmm. us this later. He was like, I've never heard of this story. He had made us truffle pasta, wow. welcomes us into the house, and he's like, you can take any room. There was all these rooms. It was like a big apartment complex or something. And I kid you not, in our room, there was a sauna, which Annabelle, just, we walked in, and she was just like, Sophia, I, I can't make this up. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a sauna in the room. That story was all to say that we also had very kind, wealthy individuals. Actually, further down the road, Andrea invited us to go on his private jet to fly out to Barcelona to see the, it was some kind of race car event, but we were so obsessed with our cakes. I remember we were like, no, that's really kind, but we need to go learn the Italian dessert now. <laughs> so Somewhere, one of my listeners, their obsession is Formula One or whatever race car it was, and they're, they're really angry with you right now. Uh, but, I know. Trust me, a lot of my friends were angry. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, well. Um, how did that? How did the pastry quest form your journey? I mean, what did you just wander into towns and approach bakeries? How did how did that specific pastry aspect uh, make your journey more interesting or more challenging or more more diversified? Well. First of all, it's a connection point. So yes, the answer is the short answer is yes. We would walk into town, we'd arrive somewhere. Uh, we had two things to figure out: where we were going to sleep mm-hmm. and what we were going to bake. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we, it wasn't necess- there wasn't an order in that. Um, but we would just start talking to people and literally introduce ourselves, like, "Hi, we're Sophia and Annabelle, and we have come here to learn how to bake a traditional cake recipe. What's a dessert?" that's famous in this town or what's, you know, what's your best dessert. I think it, it, it's a pattern. Again, it, this idea of pattern interrupt, if you meet somebody and it's not just the usual, hi, I'm this, I work, you know, I'm from here and I do this. We would go straight to the cake hmm. because people are then they're a bit like, Oh, wait, that's quirky. What's going on? Um, in Greece, we ended up, uh, I don't know what the word in English is. My brain has now switched to French because of these stories. Uh-huh. Um, we ended, I, Annabelle and I got in an argument in the street because it was late and restaurants were really busy so they couldn't help us. And I walked into a photography shop hmm. and I just literally walked up and very candidly, I was like, hi, I'm looking for the best cake in the city. And, you know, this is like a photography store. There were three people there. They were like, oh, uh, this is a photography store. We're like, I know, but I, I'm asking you as person to person, what's the best cake in the city? And we ended up, they ended up kind of very Mediterranean, like, He's like, well, wait, actually, I think there's this woman who makes this orange cake. Let me go ask the next door neighbor. So he walks out. He, the neighbor comes in, asks me what we're doing. And by the end, there were like eight or nine individuals walking <laughs> these cobblestone streets asking like, hey, what, what's the name of that girl who makes the orange cake? Where's the orange cake? What's this, something about this orange cake? Finally find the girl who made the orange cake. And 
it happens that she blitzes an entire orange into her recipe. She doesn't peel it and bake. She just wow. blender. She just throws in a full orange. Uh-huh. And so it just releases a lot of, of flavor with the peel. Hmm. Um, but to answer your point, we would come in with a target. And then back to kind of what we were talking about in the introduction, I think people just feel invested. Hmm. So if you come in saying, hey, I'm looking for something specific and it's something, so, you know, it's cake, it's lighthearted. Everybody, there was a lot of connections to mothers and grandmothers. We would have people tell us stories about their favorite cake from childhood. Actually, in Romania, we baked a cherry cake with this uh, grandmother who was in her 80s and she was baking with pork fat which I didn't even know is possible. And we got connected to her because when, uh, the evening before we were at a, at a bar talking with these guys about our, our cake journey. And, um, they were like, Oh, his grandmother was a baker and she makes the best cherry cake in town. And we were were just like, great. Can we meet her? Can we bake with her? And he said, sure, come on over tomorrow. She didn't speak English. So he was there translating everything. Mm Um, so, in every yeah, in every country we would arrive, we would seek out, like, express and claim our our objective, and then let people meet us halfway and help us find re- recipes. I was more again, I because I'm data orientated and I, I I get very intellectual and I get very like I want to make sure that I have all my options. I sometimes would look up online, like I would go to Google and just like look up you know uh, traditional dessert from whatever, uh, Slovenia. But Annabelle was really good at catching me on that. She would always say, she's like, okay, there's, there's a fine line between overly wanting to control. And then we're, we'll cut ourselves off from certain opportunities. If we come in saying, Hey, we've, we know about this recipe specifically and we want to learn it. We're not letting people actually maybe tell us about certain hidden, hidden gems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to make sure if that answers the question, because I know there's, there's different well, I'm just thinking maybe the people who are listening are, are thinking like, how does this work? How does this logistically work? Because there's the, the there's the hitchhiking aspect, but then once you get to the place where you're going to go, how do you find the bakeries? And it sounds like you just sort of opened yourselves up, and you didn't necessarily have an address or an idea, um, which, yeah. which I like because coming from the middle of the country, people might want, oh, Kansas, let's find barbecue when in fact maybe this town has a good bakery, you know, or this, mm-hmm. this town, um, is, is good at something that isn't barbecue. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious to know how maybe some specific examples of how the, the pastry quest formed your journey and how it surprised you sometimes. A hundred percent. And I think, so something to explain because it'll maybe also help understand the vagueness of the answers. Aside from wanting to learn a cake recipe, we had no plan. Like this is what I'm, I always try to explain. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have a a strategy except for we're going to go to each country and find a cake. And so that left us a lot of leeway. You know, we didn't just take target bakeries. We would hundred percent go into coffee shops, bakeries, stuff like that, but we would just talk. A lot of it came through talking with humans. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked to police officers. We talked to, students. Uh, we talked online at some point people started following us and asking and just being like, Oh, if you go to the city, look for this thing. So we were gathering information from a lot of places. We got to Slovenia fairly late in the afternoon. We were in Ljubljana, Ljubljana. Mm -hmm. Um, and we got there around four. So the one thing is that when you're looking for, again, whether you're hitchhiking or asking for housing, once it gets dark, it's a little bit tricky to like to just talk to people because it's just dark and people are more fearful, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, So we knew that we only had so many hours before sunset in which we could find a place to stay. Um, And in walking through the streets, we walked into this one coffee shop and we saw this display of different cakes and we thought, Oh my goodness, this is, this is great. So we're always in our heads as we're going through our day, there's again, two targets, right? There's housing, traveling, like just basic security and then food, cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this coffee shop, I remember we asked the woman, we we're just like, Hey, this, do you, is there a baker in house? We're looking for cake recipes. And she was very warm. And she just said, you know, look, it's 4 PM. We're closing down, but come back tomorrow morning and we can set something up. We'd love to teach you this like chocolate raspberry tart situation going on. Um, <laughs> so that was in our head. We're like, okay, tomorrow we now have, an app- not an appointment, but we have agreed that we'll show up in the morning to come and 
and make our request. But we still don't know how tomorrow's going to happen because we still don't know where we're going to sleep. And so then once that's kind of, once the cake agreement has been, you know, verbally established, we then focus on finding a place to sleep. And that was a different journey. So that's going into, again, coffee shop, bars, um, Eye contact is important. We would often talk to people who would make eye contact with us just with, you know, trying to stay open to conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up finding our host at, well, we met her around 6 p.m. She was also working in a coffee shop and she was just like, you know, I don't really know who's going to let you stay in their house like this. Mm-hmm. But she said, if you don't have, if you found nothing by 11 p.m., I close my shop at 11, come back and you can stay at mine. So mm-hmm. we're like, Okay. Uh, and at 11 p.m. we had not found a place to sleep. So we went back to see her. Um, she walked us through the streets and she actually she actually wasn't even staying in her home. She was staying at her brother's home to take care of his dog. Mm-hmm. But she gave us the keys, opened her house. And she was like, look, you know, this is my room. I'm sorry. It's a mess. You can eat anything from the fridge. Make yourself at home. I'm not sleeping here tonight, but you can stay here, you know, for mm-hmm. however long you need. And I remember just thinking, wow, I don't even know if I would do this. Hmm. so that was again in that day you know we arrive at 4 p.m by midnight we found where we're staying with this woman just extreme generosity and we already have uh, a lead for the cake for the next day that we Mm -hmm. also found in that same afternoon Mm -hmm. so that's like a specific example i wish i could say that it was everywhere like that it wasn't every country was very different um for example in poland Annabelle had, she knew somebody, she didn't really know her, know her, but I think it was a friend from either middle school or high school who had been following our adventures, uh, through Instagram. And she actually hit Annabelle up. Interestingly enough, we were stranded in Poland. Same thing at night. We were really struggling to get a car and she had told her like, Hey, you know, come stay at my house for a night. And I've also prepared a surprise. And we had to contact her and say, look, it's, you know, it's 10 PM and we're still an hour away from you. So we don't really know when we'll get there. Um, we might have to push it back a day. And she was like, no, 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 I'm going to come and pick you guys up. So she drove Hmm. all the way from her hometown. Oh, I think it was a listener. She came to pick us up, drove us back to her house. And the surprise that she had planned is that she had reached out to the oldest bakery in the region to do, give us a tour of the bakery. So we went in the next day with her into this, like, this bakery had been there for, I don't, again, I don't want to put in a number, but this, this older man and his two sons had been running the spot for like, I want to say over 60 years. And they just did a full on, you know, we got there really early. We baked croissants with them. We learned how to make croissants. We learned how to make this uh, traditional like morning bun that they have in Poland. Mm-hmm. And so she had already lined up that entire experience for us because she knew what we were looking for. So she had, you know, before she had gone out of her way to contact this bakery and say, Hey, there's these two traveling girls and they want to learn how to, to bake something with you. Um, so yeah, it, it was each, each city and each country has its own story. There is a, definitely a pattern where in smaller cities, again, kind of what we were saying with, I guess, you know, wealth and, and poverty, when you have a smaller group, people hmm. feel more connected to you. Hmm. So it was easier for us in smaller cities to find ways to be supported in bigger cities. You're lost in the crowd. It's a jungle. It's hard to get people's attention. People are just focused on, you know, their next moment. So by the end of the trip, we were definitely trying to target smaller, like small to mid-sized cities. That makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm curious as you went to these places, was there a debrief, debrief process? Did you have another spreadsheet wherein you put all your lessons or you put all your recipes? We wrote down some of the recipes into digital form because after this trip, we actually opened uh, a home bakery in Morocco. So mm. the whole point, again, like, and this, I forget to precise this, when we kind of decided to do the trip, the next step was we're gathering all of these recipes to then go open a social cafe in Morocco where we introduce, like every week we roll out two or three recipes from the trip so that people can get introduced to traditional recipes from another country. Well, this is interesting. I mean, I'm used to talking to people who've written books as a result of their trip, where yours actually was sort of a business research to to start a cafe? Yes, it was at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm currently writing out the travel memoir, so now I would fall into the first bucket. Mm -hmm. But um, it was at the time, yeah, we were gathering the recipes to then go open a cafe. Um, And we did... did 
we rolled out some of them. So we ended up not opening the cafe brick and mortar. Uh, we did it from home because things went a little bit, we just didn't really trust the investors that we were in contact with anymore. Mm. So we decided mm. to bake from home. So this is now in Marrakesh uh, and we were baking the the recipes that we really trusted because some recipes we made and they were just like amazing on site. And then other recipes we observed people making them and we knew that we had to try them again before we could roll them out and sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, in Italy, we learned how to make a crostata with, uh, marmalade and the recipe was fairly simple enough that we could make it again ourselves um what else did we make from the trip so we made the italian crostata i think we made the orange cake i i see us blitzing oranges in in morocco especially with with the quality of fruit that's over there (laughs) um there was like i want to say there were six to seven yeah let's say six to eight core recipes from the trip that we were then able to make again and sell and there were others that we parked as okay needs more more research and development um and that I haven't picked up those recipes since the trip. I remember them, and I do have I have a tab on on the Excel sheet where I wrote down the title of each recipe. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I have the, the recipe per se. As a business experiment, uh, how did the Morocco uh, pastry uh, enterprise work? And are you thinking of an American equivalent, or what is the what's the take home from the from the business side of this event? <laughs> um, so we actually got a lot of. There was definitely a lot of interest for the cakes because we were, you know, what we're talking about Morocco and Marrakesh, it's mostly Moroccan pastries mm-hmm. because tourists want that, right? So yeah. tourists will come in and they want a gazelle, gazelle horn, it's called, comme de gazelle. Um, and we were coming in thinking, okay, we want to interrupt a little bit and bring in recipes that are more uh, Western. So we had our kind of our set list, like carrot cake and lemon poppy seed or banana bread, stuff like that. Um, plus all the rotating recipes. Uh, and our first interest was from the expat community because Morocco does have a big expat community, especially mm-hmm. actually Americans hmm. and French. So they were kind of craving those sweets from home because they were kind of, you know, they, 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 there's nowhere in town where you could find like a, an American chocolate chip cookie that's like gooey in the middle and crunchy on the side. <laughs> you can find almond biscuits, but you can't find that necessarily. I like the specificity um, of that. Yeah, that's that is very American. It's listen, a whole episode can be done on the texture of chocolate chip cookies, but <laughs> I like the way you think. There needs to be there needs to be an agreed. <laughs> I, I recently did an Instagram poll on this where I asked my friends, "Are chocolate chip cookies supposed to be crunchy or soft?" And mm. the trap was that it has to be both in the middle yeah. and on the side. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, <laughs> so anyways, our first interest was from the expat community. And then what we did is we made these little sample boxes. I thought, okay, if there's interest from the expats, there's going to be some kind of dormant interest from the tourists. Because even if they're there mm. for a week, they're not going to want to eat almond paste all week. I, feel, I I have that myself. If I'm traveling somewhere, you know, I'm, I really immerse myself up until a point where I'm like, oh my God, a French restaurant, they make crepes. I'm going to go have a crepe. Mm-hmm. I know it's not going to be like a crepe at home, but just the connection to, mm. to, to familiarity makes me feel good. So we made a sample box of all these different little cakes and we went across for, I think, a full week. We just walked up to different coffee shops and cafes and pitched them our our little baked goodies. But to your point about the business, so it went, I want to say, I mean, essentially we closed it, right? We didn't continue. Mm-hmm. I, I'm mm-hmm. not currently running a business, a bakery in Morocco. I think we came to a point where we realized if we're going to do this, there is a there is a demand mm-hmm. and there is a, a possibility, but it's going to require probably three to five years of investing time and money. Mm-hmm. And multicultural, but like there's intercultural management is a real thing. And I think Morocco specifically is a country that if you do not adapt to the way that life is led, you will, you will think because, and you know, and I'm really honest on this. Like I see so many foreign entrepreneurs, including myself, probably we come in with kind of a neo-colonist approach of like, okay, I'm going to come in with all these systems. I'm going to do it my way. Hmm. It's going to be nice and structured and I'm going to offer something new and, and, and different. But 
it's not always received the way you would expect it to. And the country is very set at times in its ways. And there's beauty about that. But for example, time management, I literally had vendors ask, you know, I'd be like, hey, it's two, we have an appointment. Like, yeah, but what is time? And I'm I'm just there like, well, okay. If we don't have time as a common agreement, I don't know how to navigate the situation. You know, like, am I just going to bump into you in the street? Like, what's going to happen? And it's not a criticism because in a world, like, when I go to New York, I get over, I'm sometimes just like, uh, what's the word? I I just roll my eyes thinking, okay, like, it's fine, you know, time is Time is a concept that we just all agree on at some point. And well, there's there's our sixth podcast idea because just I the know. idea that that time as we know it was invented with the <laughs> clock, which came out of monasteries in medieval Europe, and so yep. much of human history had time was not a mechanized thing. Anyway, yep. it, it's a topic that interests me. So I love the philosophical <laughs> answer. Oh well, what is time? So I'm no, like, what really? is time? And, yeah. and he's laughing, but I'm sitting there like you're laughing, but you're serious because yeah. you're not here. And so in your mind, you're just like moment by moment. And yeah. it is true. It, it's it's. I think it, it raises great, great questions. I mean, I, it definitely taught me patience, if anything. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, anyways, we decided to close down the business in, I think, almost six to eight months into it, just because we were like, also, there's only so much cakes you can bake as to, you know, we wake up at five, we'd make cakes. And then by 10, we have other things to do and like going out and sourcing clients and just delivering the cakes and mm. going and buying materials. So we were in order to scale the business, we would have needed to really sit down, gather a team. And we could have done it. We could have raised funds, found a spot, but it, it wasn't our highest excitement at the time. Um, and then your second part, what is, is it something that I would do in America? I doubt it. I think Honestly, I realized that the trip, the cakes and the trip, like my love for baking was the bait for me to realize that it's actually connection that I was seeking. And it was, again, Mm. back to this point of diversity. It's very the alchemist of me. You know, I think I'm going after a treasure, but actually it's the journey that I learned. And I wish I didn't have, I wish I wasn't so cliche, but it's so true. It's like when I sat down after, after the trip and reflecting on whether or not I wanted to open a bakery, I just thought it's not the actual cakes that brought me the joy. They do. And I still eat cakes every day (laughs) because I love them, but it was the stories and it was getting to connect with people at a deeper level because you're Trojan horsing, you're coming in and you're, again, you're not coming in like, Oh, who are you? Convince me that, you know, like it's not this, you're not feeling somebody else. You're, you're coming in being like, all right, I want to know something really, really specific about your culture. Invite me into your world. Invite me into your country. Invite me into the stories that these recipes carry. Hmm. And it was like a, it's like an elevator. Instead of taking the stairs, you, we were in people's homes. We were, we would talk about, we'd start talking about cake, but we'd end up talking about their families and politics and uh, history of the country. And we had people be like, oh, you know, stay an extra week and we'll drive you to this really cool region. Like, hmm. I think it, it's contagious. Curiosity is contagious, and so. Well, I, yeah, I, I love I love this aspect of the trip because again, it goes against um, many American instincts that focuses on outcomes rather than stories. You know mm-hmm. that that fa- focuses <laughs> on you know results rather than enrichment. And um, so, there's a couple things I like. One is that. Um, you, your your journey was about the same age in life as my first big vagabonding journey was. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of learning by traveling and not knowing yet what you're going to learn. And then also, I mean, just the idea of starting a business, not necessarily to get on the stock market exchange with it, but just to try it. I think that that is another thing that Americans, young people in particular, can embrace, that sometimes it's worth starting a business, be it a, a bakery or whatever, for the story rather than the outcomes, because that is so enriching in life. I I couldn't have worded that better. And I think it's, wow, I'm having a complete realization that that's, I think that's what I'm trying to distill from this trip and explain to people, even in writing the memoir, I, I can, the story's already written out. I, I wrote as a child, I was in a writing program and, you know, you have to sit down and create the characters and create the, the plot and all that. And when I look into this, when I tell these stories, a lot of people actually ask me questions that are geared towards the outcomes. So it's like, so what did mm. you then do with it? And how did it end? And I'm always trying to explain like, 
the magic is in is in the process. It's not in the actual outcome. If you can stay curious and open without already defining, like this is how it'll end, and this is what I'm I'm you know there's always a balance between having being goal orientated versus being exper- like the, the experience orientated but for me that was that was the essence of my trip it was that we didn't of course the cakes were guiding us but we were really relishing and experiencing the the connection and the moments um and i was telling that recently to somebody who they um they they coined my the journey as they said it was like the title of the, the trip, I call it the banana bread chronicles because it all started with a banana bread recipe in Morocco. And, um, he was like, well, essentially what you're telling is like recipes for an unconventional life. And I mm. thought that's, that's really interesting because I don't, I don't come in. I can't, it would be fake of me to tell the story from a place of like discipline and drive and dedication. Like we woke up every morning at eight and we went to talk to three different, you know, we had a list of all the bakeries to hit up and we had, certain metrics to, to keep track of my documenting of the Excel sheet was just to be able to remember all the details and be able to talk about it later. But a hundred percent, like for most countries, it was guided by just complete following our curiosity and obsession for this one thing that would then lead us to other moments. My permission slip to go towards a more creative field was birthed in that in that trip as well because I saw the I saw the in real life power and impact that stories can have in connecting us. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate@rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.